I reckon at the core of it was David Attenborough's plea to everyone and he just said, don't waste anything. Mm. Just don't waste anything. Mm. Mm. And I, I just found that in- incredibly potent mm. and it's it resonates in all sorts of um, complex areas like this interaction between uh, energy efficiency and demand response. But at the core of it is don't waste anything. Yeah. Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm joined by the current CEO of .au Domain Administration and former CEO of Energy Consumers Australia, Rosemary Sinclair. And welcome, Rosemary. And how are you travelling in this strange twilight zone between lockdown and real life that we all find ourselves in here in Australia? Oh, hi, Luke, and it's it's nice to be back in the energy sector for a little while. Indeed. Um, look, travelling travelling pretty well. Not surprising for uh, something called .au Domain Administrator to be travelling okay in um, <laughs> in remote working mode. Um, I guess exploring the outer edges of uh, you know the technology platform that we play a little bit of a role in. But um, so far, so good. Yeah, well, it certainly strikes me it's probably not a bad sector to be in at the minute. And uh, with those virtual communications and the internet becoming more vital than ever as we navigate this new lifestyle. Yes, and uh, it's you know been an interesting experience. I walk in the door at uh, Outer, as we call ourselves for short, and um, kind of two weeks into it, everybody's walking out the door uh, <laughs> to remote working. So <laughs> fortunately, we've done a, a little business continuity exercise mm. uh, before that, and found that uh, you know we could work remotely very very successfully. Um, so ever since the middle of March, we've been working remotely, um, but happily, you know, making progress on uh, all the matters before us quite well, quite efficiently, um, combined with a couple of social uh, get-togethers every week. Um, mm-hmm. We've been managing pretty well. Very good. And um, I suppose uh, most of our listeners will be firmly embedded in the in the energy space and um, mm. perhaps like me, hadn't come across outer before and uh, as I was looking into the organisation, it struck me that knowing your long history of advocacy in the telecommunications space, uh, that uh, the, the trip to outer might feel like something of a homecoming, Rosemary. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a funny little bookend. Uh, my career in the communications sector, Luke, goes all the way back um, to the heady days um, that uh, if you wanted to call Melbourne from Sydney, you had to call me. I was, of course, a child prodigy at that time, putting myself through university. Right. <laughs> but we're a, a very long way um, from that to um, uh, to uh, use of the internet that uh, even those of us that have been working in the space for a long time um, were surprised by the, you know, very rapid change that we saw um because of COVID-19, you know, there have been discussions about online education for 20 years. Mm. There have been discussions about uh, the use of uh, telehealth for 20 years. Um, but there were significant um, policy decisions and they were finally made and very quickly. And then the uptake of those services has just been phenomenal. Mm. Um, and I think we're now pretty much all of us reflecting on that experience over the last few weeks and thinking um, that we might not go back to the old normal, that there's been great advantage and great convenience um, in the way we've learned how to work and interact over the last few weeks. I, I think that's right, and it's been one of the themes over the last number of episodes of First Fuel. We are we are living in a new reality, and um, there's been a there's mm. been a bit of a paradigm shift in all kinds of areas, um, and it both goes to the, the the experience that we've accumulated over the last number of weeks, adapting to a, a very different set of constraints, um, but also I guess also realizing how much of the way that we we live our lives and and the way that we do business is cultural. Like there's actually yes. uh, we have a, we have choices about how we do things, and mm. um, with with the the will and and the uh, and the motivation and the bandwidth, we can actually change things very quickly if we if we want to, Rosemary. Yes, yes, <laughs> which uh, I'm sure is a, a theme that uh, we'll come back to in the course of 
um, this conversation. Um, it's it's that combination of um, wanting to and being able to mm. um, and then having the tools to support the choice. Um, but I think um, I think there had been, you know, important discussions um, happening around the world for a couple of years now, um, captured by that big discussion about trust. Mm. You know, why was there a lack of trust? What was going on? Why didn't we trust institutions or politicians or um, whatever um, big picture element we were thinking about? Um, there was this, you know, disturbing feeling that we were off balance, mm. that some, something was wrong. And uh, I think this crisis um, has just provided the, the catalyst um, for us to get to what was wrong, which is that perhaps we were all living lives that um, we wouldn't have chosen to live if we'd uh, had the prescience and time to stop and think and mm. reflect. Mm. And for me, that's why people just won't rush back um, to the old way of living um, because there has been that time to think about uh, choices mm. and new ways of doing things and living lives. Yeah, I think that's really true. Uh, I also think that there is an opportunity for, for government now having, you know, uh, across the political uh, spectrum played a very constructive uh, very admirable role, really, mm-hmm. in guiding the Australian community at both the state and federal level through this crisis, um, where there was perhaps a, a trust deficit. Um, the, you know, there's a, the, the community is really pulled in behind government, and um, there's a window of opportunity, whereas me, for, for, for government to use that as a little bit of a reset, um, to um, re-establish um, and reinvigorate um, the, the community's trust in, in public institutions, um, you know, it can go in a variety of ways and that, that opportunity could easily be squandered. But it's, it's worth reflecting on for, for leaders, I suppose, across the community, um, both political leaders but leaders of all other kinds of organisations about how, how we can use this opportunity to, um, to move all kinds of balls forward. Yes, I, I agree with that, Luke, and I think, I think one of the um, critical uh, outcomes of this period is a reaffirmation that the community um, sees a role for government mm. that goes beyond just the um, organisation and management of markets. In certain circumstances, you know, mm. the community wants government in um, the particular circumstance or process. So I think there's a, um, you know, a reflection uh, in a very deep way about that matter, the role for government um, and what the community's expectations are of government. And as you say, so far so good. Mm. You know, there's an expectation about good information. There's an expectation about uh, caring for the community. Uh, There's now, uh, you know, a good response, I think, to the discussion that's going on about um, reconstructing the economy and Mm keeping people in work and getting people back to work. Um, so I think um, that is uh, providing a, an opportunity and a platform um, for rebuilding trust in mm. government. Mm. And, again, I, th- I think it would be a terrible shame if government just went back to the old no- normal um, when uh, what we've seen, the national cabinets, the, you know, engagement uh, with community organisations, with small business organisations, with big business organisations, that, that level of engagement in the pursuit of a shared goal, um, I think, provides a terrific direction for um, what we would like to see mm. uh, in the future. Well, we will uh, watch with interest. Um, I suppose mm. back in our little world of uh, energy and energy policy, um, I, I think again that um, uh, our listeners tend to be tend to be in the energy space, and so we'll know mm. Energy Consumers Australia. But it's a it's an important body, but also a relatively new one. And, and five years mm. is, is pretty new in the in the scheme of things in the energy space in Australia. And um, so I, I know that there will be some people that are aware of Energy Consumers Australia, Rosemary, um, mm. but don't necessarily have it completely straight in the head the role that it plays and uh, this might be the last time you're ever asked to explain (laughs) 
what energy consumers in Australia does, but I'm going to I'm going to do it. If you could uh, tell us how it came about and uh, what it role what its role is, Rosemary, I would be uh, deeply indebted to you. Happy to do that. Um, it's um, actually Energy Consumers Australia is um, a global first. It's it's one of those um, you know unsung Australian firsts mm. that uh, we uh, don't take enough credit for. Um, the idea was the result of um, a, a lot of um, uh, uh, lobbying and consultation which really went to the fact that energy is an incredibly important service for households and small businesses, um, but all sorts of, you know, incredibly important decisions are made about the sector without that voice um, being at the table. And um, so the creation of Energy Consumers Australia was a response by the Energy Council of Ministers to that Dilemma: How to put the voice of consumers and small businesses at the table when big um, policy decisions are being made about energy sector matters? Um, so, uh, ministers created a small organisation, Energy Consumers Australia, and gave it that remit uh, to promote the long-term interests of consumers of energy services and um, created it as a small company limited by guarantee to give it quite an independent status, um, but enabled uh, ECA to participate um, in range of different processes, including all the way up to the Ministerial Council. Um, The constitution of ECA is really quite interesting because it has uh, a quite detailed section on how the organisation is to do its work Um, and that uh, led to a very significant emphasis on um, stakeholders of all sorts, uh, consumer groups, uh, consumers, uh, industry regulators, policymakers, uh, ombudsmen, the the raft of uh, organisations that work together to um, deliver outcomes in the energy sector. Um, but the Constitution also says that the work would be evidence-based and that became incredibly important. Um, it uh, provided the ballast uh, that enabled a new and little organisation uh, to create its voice and to do its work on behalf of um, consumers uh, and small businesses. And, you know, there were various uh, junctures and points where in discussions um, with policymakers, regulators and industry, um, basing the position on the voice of the consumers um, was absolutely pivotal to the success of the outcomes. And having said that, um, the creation of that new knowledge and sharing it in a collegiate and collaborative way I think it was really the missing piece. Mm. Um, the The sector really does want to do the right thing by consumers. Um, having that voice at the table, I think, gave gave everybody a reason to um, to engage in a different way. Mm. And I, I suppose in a in a very um, tumultuous period in Australian energy policy, um, one of my observations of Energy Consumers Australia is you provided a safe space for a whole bunch mm. of different stakeholders to come together and think out loud um, around what the future could hold um, and, and what was possible. And mm. as you say, I, I think there's a lot of goodwill out there. Um, obviously, everybody's um, got a particular particular set of interests that they're uh, tasked with uh, representing. But ultimately, I think most people that I encounter in the energy space um, want to deliver a good outcome for consumers, a good outcome for the environment, as well as a good outcome for the organisations which they represent. Yeah, I think it was that... Um that way of uh, building the bridge across all the different interests and elements in the Mm. sector Um, because there had been a a particular approach to the policy setting and regulation of the sector um, which had broken the sector into constituent parts. But, in fact, all those parts need to work together to get the right outcome for the consumers. 
Um, and the other thing that I think was uh, happening that made creating a place where people could share and explore ideas, I think the you know profound technological change uh, that was happening um, also was you know disrupting um, the normal course of events yeah. um, and creating the need for people to think differently and um, think afresh. Uh, that's that's very difficult to do if you see your task as defending incumbent interests. Mm. Um, if you see the task as being part of a dialogue to get a better outcome for consumers, um, then it's easier to see a way into the new discussions. Um, so I, I think that idea, and it was actually at the, the base of the um, foresighting forum mm-hmm. idea, because it became clear that, um, you know, there was no other space really where everyone came into the room, mm. um, you know, generators, retailers, transmission, uh, local distribution, uh, clean energy, energy efficiency, all the different elements, you know, come into the room mm-hmm. to work together on particular issues. Um, and I, I think that has been pivotal. Mm. And um uh, I was amazed by the energy that that uh, kind of conversation generated and the momentum that was then created around a range of different issues. I suppose one of the things that um, I wanted to dig into um, to begin with was what it was like operationalising that vision, that bold and it sounds like uh, unique vision that was uh, that was set out by the Coag Energy Council and um, and I guess the uh, the founding board of Energy Consumers Australia um, uh, and the things that sort of stood out to me um, looking back over the over the organisation's history was that there were probably a couple of things that um, that helped set you on that path. And one you've mentioned the foresighting forum, um, you know, so you started those um, relatively relatively early in the piece, and and the other one was the uh, the consumer sentiment survey. Um, and you might add others to that list, but I'm interested to know what, mm. what's what really made the difference in in terms of taking taking the bold vision to something which actually had some some flesh on the bones and you were able to really chart a course forward? Well, see, the Energy Consumer Sentiment Survey, I can draw an absolute direct line from something as arcane as our constitution, mm. which says you will be evidence-based mm-hmm. to, you know, those of us who were there in the first 12 months saying, well, well, where is the evidence of what consumers think? Mm. Who, who's who's got that evidence? And um, you know, we we realised quickly that there there wasn't really a body of solid evidence about what consumers were thinking about their existing experiences. And I'll come back to why I'm so specific about that in a minute. Um, so the idea of the survey emerged in discussion. Um, in the, in the early days, and when I say the early days, I, I think we had Lynn Gallagher um, on board, we had David Haviot on board, we had Chris Alexander on board, we had a bank account, a board and an office, um, but, you know, we were still uh, um, exploring our role. Uh, anyway, the idea emerged of, you know, creating a body of evidence. And then we went from that to... The second element of our way of working, which is um, to collaborate with people to promote the interests of consumers. So that took us in a um, particular direction with the survey, which in essence, Luke, reflected the fact that everybody knew things were pretty bad Mm. um, in terms of outcomes for consumers. And we wanted to... um, create evidence that would help people chart the course to the future. Um, So, for example, we were very deliberate in not asking consumers whether they liked their electricity bills. Right. Now, we could have done that, but the answer would have been, no, I don't. Um, And that really wouldn't have helped anybody. Um, So we went to um, a more consumer perspective on things, which is do you think you're getting value from electricity and gas? And, you know, when you think about it, can you think about it 
relative to mobile phones and the internet and other things that make a difference in your life. So that, that, that created a whole discussion about how to improve value for consumers. Mm. So, you know, from the get-go, the survey started opening up discussions rather than closing down options. And we were, we were looking at, uh, you know, people's uh, satisfaction with the market, uh, their confidence in the market and what they were intending to do. All of that created a language um, to firstly start understanding consumers in a different way and then from that to start thinking about creating more value, uh, helping consumers to feel more satisfied, uh, even to reflect um, very deeply on why it is that consumers say to us survey after survey after survey, I don't think this sector has my interests at heart. Mm. You know, kind of my nose is telling me these people are on about something else. Um, so the survey was pivotal, uh, Luke, and there were a number of occasions where, you know, all of us at ECA would be talking to people and we'd say, well, you, you might think that, but what consumers are saying is A, B and C. Um, so we saw that survey from the get-go as the con- contribution of the consumer voice um, to discussions that people uh, were having where, in a sense, Luke, I suppose we trusted that the people wanted to do better and to get better outcomes and therefore they would, you know, value and use the information in a positive way. Uh, and I think that uh, we've seen the uh, the proof of that uh, with the use of the survey information um, as a springboard to all sorts of other investigations and reflections on consumers' needs and, and their experiences. It strikes me that with the survey, what you managed to do was um, map out map out a whole new field for conversation, um, you mm. know, areas that were, you know, partially understood or, or not understood suddenly became uh, apparent. Um, and to the degree that you were then advocating uh, for consumers, you did so with a, with a degree of moral force because it wasn't just your kind of vibe based on, you know, what you were hearing um, from, from folk uh, in the industry. It was, it was based on, you know, those direct conversations and, and reinforced over years. And, and mm. you know, doing the survey every six months meant that you were able to, during, a, as I say, a pretty tumultuous period, um, track how consumers were, were feeling and, and, you know, then do that next level of analysis of, well, if this is what they're feeling and this is what they say they want, how do we do the heavy lifting um, as an industry to give them that? You know, it's not their job mm. to, to provide the, the services or or, provide, or or come up with the tools. It's our job to, to meet their needs and to, and to um, uh, build a sector where at some point in the future an ECA survey can and uh, show all of us that um, consumers feel that the sector does have their interests at heart and that's, I mm. guess, got to be the ultimate goal and I think is the goal that my impression is that uh, the, the sector has rallied around, Rosemary. Uh, look, I'd agree with that, Luke. I think, um, you know, we were quite careful to ensure that the survey was robust um, because we wanted people to use it mm. and we published the survey and let people have access to the data so that they could, you know, push things around and explore from a range of uh, different points of view. Um, but I think in that consumer sentiment survey started to pull out um, a, a range of different ways of thinking about consumers. Mm. So, mm. um For example, there was a a section in it about, um, you know, how confident do I feel about the market? Mm. Uh, That was part of a section which asked people how confident they felt about making decisions uh, in their own interests. And and it was absolutely fascinating because people say, I feel quite confident in making decisions, but I'm not getting the information or tools that I need from the sector uh, to uh, be confident that my decisions are the best ones. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So that does lead you to solutions and actions and responses rather than just leaving with you with, oh, well, the consumers aren't happy and it's all your fault. Um, mm. So this kind of unpacking of what the consumers wanted that they felt the the consumers themselves felt would help them, um, I think did provide people with a bit of impetus, you know, to start thinking um, outside their own organisations to the outcomes that the consumers were chasing um, and in in innovative ways. So it, it kind of, I think, freed people up from, you know, the old way of thinking and the incumbent position you know, it's a, it's a much um, better position to be in when you're trying to chase difference and change uh, to have that end goal in consumer language. Mm. Um, so I, th- I think it did. I think it unlocked, you know, quite a bit of um, innovation and freer thinking because people were really focused on the consumers and better outcomes for them. And I suppose also helped flesh out uh, ECA's work plan. Um, and uh, the, mm. the, the big initiative that stands out to me, Rosemary, is um, is PowerShift, um, the, mm-hmm. the the project which delivered its final report just uh, a few months ago um, while you were still CEO. Uh, must have been incredibly mm. satisfying to uh, present that to the Foresight Forum back in, in February. For listeners that aren't familiar with PowerShift, um, could you give a little bit of background on, on that project and um, what it was trying to achieve? achieve uh, where it drew its data from and indeed uh, what some of the key takeouts of that very important work were. Yeah, and I'd just like to context it a little because Mm. you're quite right, there's a kind of a bridge from the uh, Energy Consumer Sentiment Survey through PowerShift and it's a a bit of an iterative bridge actually. Mm. But out of um, Energy Consumer Sentiment Survey, we developed an advocacy framework at uh, ECA, which essentially said that um, uh, energy services should be, from the consumer's point of view, affordable. They should be individualised and everybody goes, what? individualized energy services, how can we do that? <laughs> Let me just leave that word on yeah, the table. No, in, <laughs> individualized at the individual level yep. and then optimized at the system level. Um, so when we then started um, thinking about, okay, even we drew breath at individualized, you know, what does that actually mean? In parallel to our thinking about that, um, there had been an opportunity through a Commonwealth Government uh, grant to explore the learnings of some work that had been done some years ago, the low-income energy efficiency projects. Mm. So there were 20 projects uh, looking at energy efficiency um, outcomes in low-income households. And PowerShift started life as a project to say, all right, well, what have we learned from these 20 projects? You know, are there kind of meta lessons that we can take and apply to other uh, low-income households on a scalable, in a scalable way? Um, the way we approached that um, was to say, well, we really have to first of all understand households. Low incomeness is one element of households, but if we're talking energy efficiency, then we're really talking about how people, households, make decisions about energy. Mm. Um, so that took us down a path of really exploring households in in a very innovative way. And um, what we came to understand was that Households make energy decisions um, in a holistic way. The place is actually very important to your thinking about and use of energy. So all of a sudden, sudden we're starting to context energy into the lives of people, mm, mm, mm. Uh, which, again, is the way they see it. Yep. Energy is only of interest to me because it enables me to do something else that is very important to me. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. And this is a point that Alan Pears made on the podcast a, a couple of weeks ago, which is that nobody actually cares about energy. They care about the things that energy can do 
for them, right? Yes, yes, ex- that's exactly right. Mm. And so we um, we learned that about uh, households in power shift. Um, we learned that the place in which people find themselves really matters. So if you mm. have a substandard house or substandard uh, non-efficient appliances, uh, then you can be the smartest decision maker, but the context in which you find yourself yep. uh, is going to, you know, stop you from getting the optimum outcome. Um, so, you know, we put all that together. We also learned that uh, there weren't huge barriers. Uh, there wasn't great momentum around energy efficiency, but there weren't any insurmountable barriers. Um, and we also did quite a bit of work on behavioral insights, how to communicate effectively with consumers mm. um, so that they were put in a better position uh, to make energy decisions. Um, but the main, the main lesson out of all of that is that um, better use of energy um, is critical to getting better outcomes for energy users. Yep. Um, so a, a lot of work has uh, has uh, developed out of that. Can I ask Rosemary, what was the thing that surprised you most coming out of that body of work? What was the? Where did you go into the power shift program, noting that it had iterations and evolved over time? You had one idea at the start of it and came out at the other end with a, a somewhat different idea. Um, I, I, th- I think the um, thing that uh, interested us most was the fact that people actually are prepared to play a role, but communications needs to start where the consumers are, mm. not where the energy businesses are. Mm. Uh, it needs to take account of their motivations, um, abilities, interests, so be individualized, if Mm. you like. Mm. Um, But people are willing to play a role. And we were so surprised, in a sense, by that, that we actually started asking people, iterating back to the Energy Consumer Sentiment Survey, we asked people um, whether uh, in, you know, times of emergency uh, was our framing. Um, you know, if, if we're in a circumstance of uh, emergency and we need you to um, use less power for a while, would you be prepared to do that? Hmm. Um, and this was, uh, uh, you know, running counter to some quite strong arguments because, we found out, and I think we've had this reinforced recently, that um, if you approach Australians respectfully with a good, solid message that they can trust, mm-hmm. then people will go through, go mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. So in the survey, 50% of people said, oh, yes, I'd be prepared to, uh, you know, manage my energy use in that circumstance um, for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, 25% of people said, oh, I'd probably want a little bit of a reward for that. Um, and then the last 25% of people um, said that they um, they wouldn't be able to do that. Mm. And that fitted with our research, which said that there's a range of health issues and family circumstances. There are a number of reasons why people um, cannot adjust the uh, amount of energy they're using. Um, but if the other 75% can, then yep. we've really broken the back of the problem anyway. Um, yep. So that willingness to uh, be a participant in the energy sector uh, through um, uh, through choice and decision-making um, was a very surprising and very powerful finding um, because it means that we're not... Uh, limited to participation through solar panels and batteries. We can get participation from the community in the energy sector in a range of different ways. That's really fascinating. And um, I suppose there's an interaction with some of the th- one of the themes coming out of the final report, which was around technology and trust. And those, those two enabling elements. So technology is uh, developing rapidly. Um, we can do all kinds of things that were uh, a glimmer in an energy wonk's eye sort of only 10 years ago. Um, mm. It's all getting very mm. exciting out there in terms of automation and demand-side flexibility and, and all of this other wonderful stuff. Um, on, the other, on the other hand, um, uh, if you want to aggregate that capacity and dispatch it, 
you're probably not wanting to text message everybody and tell them to turn the air conditioner mm. off at the same time. You want them to have enough trust in that aggregator, indeed, within the in the energy sector broadly, to say, well, yeah, I, I trust you. You're not going to, you know, leave me baking in my apartment on a hot day. Mm. Ultimately, we do need to rebuild that trust to enable some of that, some of that, that those really big opportunities, right? Yes. No, I, I think trust is the. Um the glue, if you like, that is going to enable the um, potential, the development and potential that we see in the energy sector. Mm. Um, but I think that we've got some um, good building blocks in place now. And when I, when I say trust in the energy sector, I think that the um, uh, industry in the sector has been working very, very hard um, particularly over the last few years, mm. to um, regain and rebuild trust. And um, I've seen that, uh, for example, in the network space um, with the, um, you know, very rapid ramp up of um, sophisticated consumer engagement in network determinations um, and a number of examples with uh, networks uh, really listening very hard to their customers and then changing their decisions on the basis of the consumer preferences. Mm. And you can see that in the outcomes of the, uh, the revenue decisions. Um, I think retailers the same uh, are really working very, very hard to uh, rebuild uh, trust uh, in their consumer base, uh, the commitment to the energy charter, the uh, short-term uh, COVID support responses of one sort or another, mm. um, uh, all, all those are elements of uh, trust being rebuilt. Um, I think the um, translation will be when we get um, energy sector companies really in their DNA, Luke, understanding that they are service companies, mm. even if they own lots of metal, <laughs> whether it's on rooftops or in, you know, um, uh, easements or wherever, um, or they own lots of computer systems, uh, really, really they are all in the business of um, servicing customers. Mm. Um, I think the customers are ready for it. Uh, that's that's what they've been saying to us. We want to know that these companies have our interests and heart at heart. And if we do, um, then we'll be prepared to move the dial on trust. Mm. And as you say, that then enables uh, the emergence of a whole range of new services, um, including you know technical aggregation services. Mm. Um, so I, I think we're. Um, I think we're uh, on the journey. Uh, certainly the technologies are emerging. It's, it's whether this trust factor can be um, strengthened and I think the way of doing that is to really focus on services to consumers. And the other, the other thing that as I was, was looking through the report again over the last couple of days, the other thing that emerged to me was that theme of, um, how did you put it, uh, the context the context mm. that uh, consumers find themselves in. Um, you can have the best will in the world and, and be trying to use energy as efficiently as you possibly can um, within a, within your own home, but if it's leaking like a sieve, Rosemary, um, then uh, mm. your, your capacity to, to do that is uh, is limited. And so we get into this whole space of, well, this is kind of an energy energy sector conversation, but it's also a building regulation conversation it's a consumer mm. protection conversation it's a health conversation and that's a that's mm. an area where i know that um over the last couple of years you and your team have pushed into very very uh strongly is to mm. make the case that there's a whole nother field which interacts very closely with the the traditional area of energy markets and energy market reform and we need to start thinking about them in a joined up way Yes, yes, that that was a very strong message from the power shift body of work. Um, it also was um, a strong message from the um, forethought research into consumer expectations. And with that research, just very briefly, um, what we did was we said, well, we've got a body of research now through Energy Consumer Sentiment Survey on uh consumers' experiences in the current market and that's given us some, you know, directions of travel for solutions. 
we understand now how consumers make decisions and how we might better communicate with consumers to help them make those better decisions. Um, but what are their expectations around energy? You know, mm. h- how far away is the goalpost? Um, so we started uh, that research by thinking, wouldn't it be good to not have an energy sector conversation with consumers? Why don't we just ask people how they are living their lives and what's important to them at various phases of their life? And then when, once we understand that, then what, what role does energy play? Mm-hmm. And that is the um, uh, consumer expectations research, which we released at the beginning of the year. And um, turns out um, the good news is that um, energy is unbelievably important to people. It's really at the bottom of the way it's, it's a fundamental technology that enables people to live their lives the way they want to live them mm. and to do the things that are most important to them at any point in time. So, uh, you know, whether they're just young and leaving home, uh, whether they're just in, you know, family formation mode, happily whatever that family looks like now, you know, can be, you know, beautifully diverse and, you know, a rich tapestry of different uh, constructions Mm. uh, or whether they're, you know, responsible for younger people or whether they're um, older in life. Uh, Across all those journeys, um, uh, energy is just fundamentally important to people. Uh, And that provides a a really good start point of the possibility of recreating value Mm. and uh, consumer appreciation. Um, So... Coming out of that, um, reinf- it reinforced the power shift finding that um, for consumers, energy isn't a sector that sort of exists somehow by itself over here. It's part of the fabric of the way I live my life. It's embedded in everything I want to do. Mm. Um, uh, and, and going to, you know, very um, significant and important consequences um, like keeping my elderly family members safe. Mm. You know, mm. I, I need, you know, good, reliable, uh, easy to understand energy uh, to keep the elder members of my family safe or to keep, you know, the youngest members of my family safe. So, you know, that, that element of what do I want to do with my family and how does energy enable me to do that? critical, absolutely critical to the way people think about the sector. Um, The other extremely interesting insight that came out of the um, consumer expectations research is consumers expect energy to be clean. You know, that that debate is done and dusted in their minds. You know, we are absolutely on this journey to clean but it's not clean at the cost of affordable. It's Mm -hmm. not clean at the cost of reliable. It's not clean at the cost of anything, really. Mm -hmm. It's all of those things and clean. Mm -hmm. Um, So that I thought was, uh, you know, a very important finding, which uh, indicates, uh, and the the way people were talking about this, uh, indicated that people were thinking uh, across generations, mm-hmm. um, this this is a you know very interesting conversation in the sector where you get the sector policy settings and regulatory settings um, reflecting a view of um, people as um, economic units. When you actually go and talk to people, um, they're not just economic units. And even if you want to have the conversation about incentives and so on, you've got to design and communicate about the incentives in ways that are important to people. Well, Rosemary, I'm heartened to hear that Australians aren't self-identifying as economic units just yet. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's incredibly encouraging. Um, and look, as you're talking, I'm sort of thinking, well, there's all these, uh, to, to deliver the value that you're talking about, um, we need to have a, 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 a joined up conversation, um, between a lot, whole lot of different areas of policy and, and regulation that, um, mm. isn't really happening at, at the moment or is it at a fairly embryonic stage? Um, 
Uh, last week we had uh, the California Energy Commissioner, Andrew McAllister, on Rosemary, and um, that body is, is one that um, I often reflect on because it, uh, it, it both sort of sets uh, regulations for building uh, standards, mm. appliance standards, uh, as well as um, providing that statewide uh, policy apparatus for supply side uh, generation uh, infrastructure planning, mm. and so it's in a position to to properly assess, even if you're just looking at it from an economic perspective, the relative merits mm. of regulation on one side of the market or the other. Um, but they do have a laser-like focus on sort of obviously driving towards a, a clean energy system, um, mm. leveraging supply-side and demand-side resources, but also delivering um, delivering value for consumers. And, and while one of the things that... Are, that um, I like to remind people of is that you know while we've sort of set our hair on fire over the last three or four years around the the unit cost of energy, Rosemary, um, in California they have one of the higher unit costs for energy around um, mm. around the US, um, but um, they also have some of the lowest bills mm. because they've been investing in energy efficiency for the last forty years, and so mm. and uh, you know and yeah, I'm sure that this would be reflected in uh, in your. Uh, in all your work engaging with consumers is the, the, the my gut feel is that uh, when I talk to people around Australia they're, they're, they're much less exercised about the unit cost of energy and much more interested in that the what's actually on their bill at the end of the day mm. um, so uh, have you got any thoughts on that sort of institutional or regulatory architecture in Australia now that you're in the happy position of being able to say whatever you want <laughs> look I, I think I think the direction of travel and it was starting starting to emerge in the last 12 months um, um, more so. Mm. I think if um, the f- focus can be laser-like on the outcomes for consumers, mm. um, then I-, I think that's where the answer lies. Um, up until that um, focus and um, huge effort uh, started, there was really, I think, a belief that um, a few tweaks on the supply side would do it. Um, it, It's just not that simple. Mm. It's just not that simple. And you're right. Um, Nobody, uh, well, I shouldn't say nobody, there was uh, most people aren't focused on the, you know, per kilowatt uh, cents per kilowatt hour mm-hmm. of uh, energy costs at the level Most, of consumer that you're engaged yes, with. Yes, that's right. That's right. Households and yep. small businesses. Yep. Most people are saying, you know, this bill is now X percent of my total budget, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not only that, but it's gone from you know a hundred dollars to three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. It's it's growing out of control. So yep. that's how people think about it. Which is not to say we don't want the supply side focus um, to shift from, you know, efficient, efficient, efficient. We keep need that. Um, But this notion of um, place, you know, the structure of my house uh, and the efficiency of my appliances and how I can make decisions about use so that I... Um, and uh, managing the volume side, if you like, of the mm. equation. So we've got price and volume, mm. coming, you know, coming together in the bill. Mm. Um, I, I think there's uh, a lot of room to move uh, on that side. And what it suggests to me is um, every decision in the sector uh, should have a, an element of really trying to deeply understand how to engage demand side issues, how to engage consumers, how to communicate with consumers. The days of just being able to focus on supply side, knowing that it would all come right, um, I Mm. think those days are done. Mm. Uh, So the um, uh, uh, re-energising of the consumer voice uh, to deliver range of different options on how to get stuff done. I, I think that's going to be critical to the future. And I suppose one of the overriding messages um, from all that research is that um, energy is so important to people, they expect to be involved, not in the detail, um, but they, expe- they expect to be able to participate effectively in this sector mm. so that they can be assured of the best outcomes. So there's a, I think there's an untapped um, 
role for consumers and small businesses in the sector. And we're really just at the beginning of that. Well, um, I wanted to close out our time together, Rosemary, by asking you a couple of things. So for you looking back on your time at Energy Consumers Australia, what are the things that you're really proud of and the things that you feel we really moved the ball forward on? Uh, There are two, um, and uh, they're kind of simple to say, but reflect, you know, years of work and amazing dedication by Mm. lots and lots of people. Um, The first is people's um, commitment to the conversation about how we get better outcomes for consumers. Um, we, we wouldn't have made nearly the progress um, that was made uh, by ECA and continues to be made by ECA without that um, commitment to better outcomes for consumers. People were really honest about the fact that we had, for a range of different reasons, wound up in the wrong place mm. um, and there was an appetite for doing better. Um, so that that was my first reflection, and and ECA played a role in um, in providing the way forward. Mm. You know, people knew they needed to do better. Nobody was really happy about where things were, but not sure how to go forward. But consumer based research and input provided that <clears throat> uh, light, if you like, on on the way forward. Um, and the second thing that uh, I'm really proud of and, and still interested in is the Energy Charter, um, which was um, a way for the industry at the level of CEOs. So this was, you know, a commitment to cultural change, uh, but the way the industry put itself back together, Mm. you know, regulation and policy was kind of pulling it apart, Mm. Uh, but industry put itself back together with the consumers at the centre of all that work and then provided um, tremendous support inside their organisations and between the organisations to have uh, open and innovative conversations about how to get better outcomes for consumers. So that... um, so that effort by industry, um, I think, was uh, really important. Um, and, of course, the uh, the other matter that I was really pleased about was, um, you know, the way we were able to work with our um, consumer colleagues and stakeholders and uh, the work that you were alluding to earlier on um, uh, better housing standards mm. was just the most marvellous example of mm. where you know, a hundred voices from different parts of the uh, community sector came together and um, worked so effectively to develop a series of um, recommendations and progress those recommendations uh, to the point where, you know, decisions were made at uh, COAG level. Um, it, it was a, a really a terrific feeling to, to see that um, momentum and joint effort um, work so effectively to get results. Well, it was wonderful from the Energy Efficiency Council's perspective to support that effort in a, in a small way, but uh, to, to watch it gather momentum and for you to have such success in um, transitioning what was a fairly wonky issue to mm-hmm. kind of the centre of the conversation and, and, and by framing it as ultimately a consumer protection issue mm. um, and one which is it's not a nice to have, it's not you know a, a healthy, comfortable building is not something which you, we should feel lucky um, to... to no to have it's something which we we should expect and there is a, there are minimum standards um uh which uh, are just part and parcel of um living in a 21st century economy yeah mm. a, a kind of bottom line a, a threshold mm. issue mm. um yes and it, it was interesting luke how that um that framing of that issue resonated mm. with people mm. and and it's that it's the same um uh, approach, if you like, that you, you know, figure out, you know, what is the best outcome for consumers. Yep. And that then provides a catalyst for all sorts of effort that's 
you know, happening in um, in a disparate and disconnected way to come together, mm. and that creates the momentum for change. Mm. Um, so it was it was really important and a great process, great yeah. process, a wonderful process. And I suppose um, this is your opportunity, Rosemary, um, for you to leave leave us that uh, are still in the energy advocacy space with a, a to do list of things that um, you didn't quite get to in your time uh, with us, um, but you you think uh, unfinished business that we need to work our way through over the coming years. What are the what are the big items that uh, we should be turning our attention to? Well, look, I, I think they. If we, if I go back to the um, ECA advocacy framework, mm-hmm. I, I think there's been quite a quite a bit done on affordable. So there's three mm-hmm. elements to the framework. Affordable, I think, is in the frame mm-hmm. as long as it stays in the frame. And when mm-hmm. I say in the frame, I mean at the National Energy Security Board, um, at, the, at the annual reports of regulators and policymakers. As long as everybody is focusing on measuring and reflecting on whether energy is affordable, Mm -hmm. then uh, we've made huge progress there. Um, The second one is individualised. And I think there's a lot of work to be done, but a huge amount of opportunity. If we can actually deliver services, tools, information, data, um, the odd widget or two um, Mm. to enable consumers to make really good decisions about energy use, um, then I think that's element number two. And then element number three is optimised. And uh, this is really a message for um, industry and regulators. And I've said this before in so many words, the days of us being able to just throw more capacity at whatever the problem is Mm. um, are done. Mm. Uh, And we need the industry to really uh, learn how to manage risk and to be agile and adaptive um, uh, in its decision-making so that, uh, you know, costs for consumers will be um, the lowest they can be whilst delivering the high-quality energy services that consumers absolutely say they want. Um, Mm. So I I think that that's going to require, you know, new skills uh, to be built. Mm. Um, I think there will be all sorts of um, opportunities for smart bits of technology to help in that. I think we're really just at the beginning of the technology revolution in the energy sector. Um, oh. And funnily enough, when I when I draw parallels between the communications sector and the energy sector, I'll say something very radical and provocative now, Luke, okay. if you find finish to this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I look at solar panels on roofs and batteries next to walls, and think about interrogating and engaging every one of these little bits of widgets, um, it reminds me of when we all had to plug dongles into our computers <laughs> and go through that conversation <laughs> with the help desk yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to connect yeah. ourselves to the wireless network. Remember yep. that? Yep, yep, yep. And then, all, then we got to a point where Mr. Intel said, oh, that looks like an unpleasant process. Why don't I just put a little chip yep, <laughs> in yep. And now we open up laptops, iPads, whatever, and we just connect seamlessly. Mm-hmm. I think that we're just at the beginning of that phase of revolution in the energy sector. Um, mm. We will wind up with everything uh, generating power and, um, you know, feeding that power to where it's needed. We're, mm. we're just at the, tr- you know, just at the beginning of enormous opportunities Um, and it's going to be great fun, I would say, for the energy sector. I I think that's absolutely right and, um, you know, Rosemary, um, sometimes my my members at the Energy Efficiency Council get a bit down in the mouth because they haven't been up the sexy end of the uh, energy debate over the last 10 years. Um, (laughs) But the thing that I'm I'm always happy to remind them is that, um, you know, what we're we're moving to from a world in which is about centralised generators and and energy running, running down big power lines and buildings hanging off the the edge of the energy network to a world where buildings are the energy network and you've got a a very diverse and disparate range of resources that need to be coordinated in real time to deliver um, an optimised outcome for for consumers and for the entire system. So uh, so I'm able to say to them, Rosemary, that you you know what energy managers are going to inherit the the earth in one way, shape or form. (laughs) (laughs) So don't worry. (laughs) 
and, and that's why I don't think I've gone very far, Luke. You know, when, yeah. I, when I think about the energy sector and the Internet of Things, indeed. I feel very close. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm fairly confident we're going to keep the conversation going for that very reason. I think they're, the intersections are only going to uh, become more apparent as time goes on, Rosemary. But um, yeah. for now, I'm, I'm happy to say uh, thank you. And I suppose I should note um, we were really pleased um, to uh, to formally kind of uh, align ourselves with Energy Consumers Australia two mm. or three months ago. Well, your former organisation became a not-for-profit partner of the Energy Efficiency Council, noting some really good collaboration that had occurred over a number of years, but just uh, putting a bit of a framework around that. And we're continuing to work with Lynn and the team and their, their, their incredible work that um, that you've kicked off, but is going to be carried forward by that by that uh, new leadership. But uh, thank you, Rosemary, for your contribution over the last five years. So, and uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing, seeing what's next in the storied career of uh, Rosemary Sinclair. Well, uh, thanks very much, Luke, for the uh, for the opportunity to just chat with you about it. Um, I left ECA, joined ADA, and then went into lockdown. So, the, <laughs> <laughs> so you've even created an opportunity for me to reflect that uh, that hadn't been there. So I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Rosemary. So that brings this episode of First Fuel to a close. Uh, if you have comments you can find us on Twitter. My handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. And uh, Rosemary, we did look up your uh, your Twitter, Twitter handle, but um, oh. I, I understand. I understand <laughs> you that promised. You, yeah, yeah. I understand that you... Uh, that you need to update that before we direct people to it. I so do. perhaps LinkedIn is the best pe- best place to find uh, find Rosemary if you're if you're yep. looking to uh, to connect with her after this episode. If Twitter is not your thing, you can email the team. The address is firstfuel at eec.org.au. We'd love it if you could leave us a review, a rating, or even both on Apple Podcasts. It will help like-minded energy geeks find the show. And, of course, some episodes, including this one of First Fuel, are broadcast as they're recorded. So you can jump on Zoom, listen in live, and contribute a question in the chat. For a full listing of upcoming recording times, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us, and we'll catch you soon. 